This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. In Blue Kaftan, husband and wife Halim and Mina run a traditional kaftan store in one of Morocco's oldest medinas. When they struggle to meet order deadlines, they take on a new apprentice, a young man called Youssef, who prompts an unexpected response from Mina's husband, Halim. Blue Kaftan won the International Critics Prize at last year's Cannes Film Festival, and it was also shortlisted for Best International Feature Film at this year's Academy Awards. I'm now joined by the director and co-writer of Blue Kaftan, Mariam Tuzani. Mariam, welcome to Primal Screen. Hello, thank you. So your film beautifully illustrates the complex roles and, and shifts that take place in a long-term partnership. But there's also a distinctly queer uh, love story that's folded into this exploration of marriage. You've created a, a queer love story in a country in which same-sex sexual activity is still le- illegal, which seems like a tremendously radical act. Um, how has your film been received in your home country of Morocco? The film is opening uh, largely uh, at a national level in June, uh, but so far has it has um, been screened at the Marrakesh Film Festival, where it won the, the jury award, and uh, the reception has been quite good. What I felt very strongly is that there was a real desire to talk about uh, certain things that we don't necessarily talk about in my society. And it's true that same-sex relationships uh, are one of those things. It is a very, very sensitive subject. And after my screenings, I felt that there was, uh, in in, um, in the theaters, so, you know, because there was a Q&As after them as well, a real a real desire to be able to, 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 to open a debate about this as well, which is what I'm hoping the film will be able to do, to be able to open a debate and participate uh, in making uh, this uh, not not a taboo subject and making this something we can talk about. Mm, absolutely. And I think that especially when it is played out on this global stage, there's much more likelihood of it becoming part of the conversation. There are a handful of other films that also couple these processes of crafting with different fabrics and textures or, or even specifically clothes making. And they couple that with sensual narratives of sexual awakening. Um, I'm reminded of Jane Campion's um, work, particularly The Power of the Dog, but, um, you know, this tactile sensuality sort of surfaces through a lot of her filmography. Um, or even Paul Thomas Anderson's The Phantom Thread, which has a very different feel to your film. How does fabric function in your film and why did you decide to situate this narrative of sexual awakening in the Kaftan store? Simply because uh, I feel very passionately for this uh, dying craft, uh, the craft of uh, kaftan making. The, today, today there are uh, every time less and less uh, uh, master craftsmen, and as they're they're disappearing, the trade is disappearing along with them. I feel very touched by this. Uh, I wanted to talk about this dying trade, and I wanted to talk about the artisans behind this trade. Um, 
these uh, kaftan makers have a very uh, personal, intimate relationship with, uh, with the kaftans they're making. I find that to be something very beautiful. Today we live in a world where I have the feeling everything goes too quickly. We're wanting to consume and move on to what's next. And I like being able to take my time. I, liked, I, I love the fact that these, that these kaftans are impregnated uh, with the soul of the people that make them uh, because there is this really personal, unique bond that gets created with each item they're working on. And I feel, once again, very, very sad that today this is disappearing. And through artisans like these, I wanted to be able to delve into, into the story, into the intricacy of the story, uh, of, of the complexity of these characters as they evolve, uh, because it is a film, above all, about love, about the complexity of this emotion, and about the complexity of these links between Halim, Mina, and Yusuf. And being able to talk about them through the creation of this kaftan for me was a was a was a beautiful manner of being able to to shed light on this craft that I'm so so touched about and on the lives of these characters and their stories. And I think the kaftan works so well as a symbol also of of Mina and Halim's relationship in which they each day put work into this and and kind of are present for one another. And it's a really beautiful relationship that is played out on screen. Can we talk a little bit about how this actual kaftan was created for the film? Because I'm assuming that this was made by, by someone in the traditional way. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. This is a traditional kaftan. And of course, I had to make a lot of um, different parts of the kaftan because for shooting and different, because the kaftan evolves throughout the film. And we, this kaftan starts becoming, uh, we, we go from a fabric that is going to little by little transform itself into this very, very intricate, complex kaftan. And uh, so I had to have different versions of the kaftan made by by a, a master craftsman. And and funny enough, he actually asked me if I wanted it to be machine-made <laughs> in order to be made quicker for the film. And I said, no, please, that is really exactly the opposite of what I want. I really wanted to take its time. I had also, I mean, I knew that it was going to take a long time, so I had planned things in advance. But this kaftan actually was inspired by a kaftan of my that I grew up seeing, um, my mother's kaftan, um, that I grew up seeing as a, as a, as a child and as, a, as, a, as an adolescent, as a young woman. And I had always dreamt of the day I would be able to wear this beautiful kaftan. I have images of her going out to these weddings, you know, wearing this kaftan. She had a lot of kaftans, but this one in particular was very, very beautiful because the work was so, so intricate. And she always explained to me how long it had taken, uh, the investment uh, by, by the artisan, the hours they had spent, the love behind it in order to make it. And so I was fascinated by it. And I dreamt of the day I would be able to get, to wear it. So the day she gave it to me and I actually wore it, I just felt the beauty of this transmission, what it actually meant. It's like wearing part of her life, part of her souvenirs, and then wearing part of, 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 of the soul of this artisan also, you know, that had made it. I had spent months uh, in an intimate relationship with this garment. There was something very beautiful about it. So when I started looking for the kaftan for the film, at the beginning, I didn't consciously go and pull out my mother's kaftan, which she had given to me by then. And it's over 50 years old today. But I started looking around. And then I realized that I was getting every time closer to the embroidery that I had actually grown up seeing. And then I just opened it and realized that is exactly what I was looking for. So this is kaftan is made identically to the one that I had inherited from my mother and that is over 50 years old today. 
That is remarkable. There is so much detail in this film and I'm really, I've watched it twice now and I I think that there's little elements and and exchanges that are made and I I can't help but feel like similar to the making of the Kaftan, the making of this film, especially if it is based on on your your own personal Kaftan, must have been such a, a personal journey for you. Absolutely. Extremely personal journey. The writing was very personal. I mean, it's true that I, I, you know, these, 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 um, feelings, these emotions that nourished my, my childhood that I grew up with. I didn't, I mean, as I was writing the film, uh, as I was imagining the film at the beginning, uh, I didn't know how present they were until I started reading afterwards the things I had written. And then I realized the impact, uh, you know, that they had had on my life. And it's true that it's always a very, very intimate process when I write, when I create, it always has to be born out of something uh, very intimate. And I, I never really know until afterwards. And then I start looking back and yes, this, this has been a very, um, very personal. Mm. And as we mentioned before, Halim and Mina's kaftan store, it's located in one of the oldest medinas in Morocco. And there's so much specificity in your film in relation to place and, like you said, the tradition of kaftan making. What kind of Morocco did you want to capture on screen? I wanted to capture a Morocco that is both traditional and modern. I wanted to capture a Morocco in which I would love to be place for the old ways and for the new ways, because I really believe in tradition and modernity can go hand in hand and can can live together. Halim is trying to keep alive a trade that is dying. It's an ancestral trade, you know, it's disappearing today. But there, there is also this, I mean, it is a beautiful tradition that I wanted to talk about. And I believe that tradition can be something extremely beautiful uh, because it is part of our DNA. It says who we are. It carries part of, a, of our history. It makes for our singularity. And I think that tradition can, should be uh, sublimated, should be celebrated. But then I also believe that there are certain traditions that have to be questioned, uh, uh, traditions that keep us from being who we are, traditions that keep us from being happy, uh, from being our true selves. And Halim is torn between this because he's trying to keep alive a tradition, but at the same time, it is another kind of tradition that is keeping him from being who he is. And I really felt that it was important to be able to talk about this complexity uh, of, of the tradition as well and, 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 and of societies such as mine. And I really believe that there is place for both. You know, as long as we can question tradition, Tradition can be beautiful. As long as tradition can also evolve when it needs to evolve, you know, not be there as something that does not move whatsoever. Mm. No, that is that is so sharply felt in your film. The complexities of both the marriage between Mina and, and Halim is not is not put in direct opposition with this budding sensual relationship between Halim and Yusuf. And I, I really loved that you allowed for both of those loves or, or interests to, to kind of remain as part of a of, of different ways of expressing that. Now, your husband is also a filmmaker and you've both made films that have courted controversy of sorts. Your film, Adam, depicts prostitution. Your, your husband's earlier film, Much Loved. I understand that the communications minister came out against the film as well and, and you experienced death threats. Nabil's film, Much Loved, depicts uh, the story of four prostitutes in Marrakesh. And the, sto- the film was, uh, was banned in Morocco, basically. Mm. Yeah, so the film 
Morocco and the and the uh, reactions were quite violent afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So how has that been navigating? this creative space in which you are going into these topics. Blue Kaftan depicts a homosexual love story in a country, like I said before, where this is illegal. I'm just curious, did you discuss it together, how you how you approach it, what this might be like? Oh, we, I mean, we discuss everything together, but what moves us above all is the real belief in the stories we want to tell. And uh, I must say also that, I mean, uh, the... The, the blue kaftan did receive money from from the Moroccan minister of, of, of uh, from the Moroccan state uh, to be made. I mean that was the first financing that came from the Moroccan state. So I do believe that there is a real desire to be able to open up through art to certain subjects that socially are complicated. Uh, I think that's a that's a very good um, for, for me. That's a very positive uh, uh, opening. Uh, to through, through art, um, and with Nabili, I mean, we 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 of course we do discuss everything, and we always make films about things that touch us personally that we feel very strongly about. And it's true that a lot of times we are attracted to to characters and to stories that uh, aren't voiced, uh, you know, to characters that don't necessarily exist openly that we uh, believe should exist. Because I mean, their their stories need to be told because they touch. I mean, they, and they do touch us profoundly. And I understand you're, you're currently promoting the Blue Caftan. You've, you've got lots of interviews and festivals in which the Blue Caftan will be playing. But what is what is next on the on the horizon for you? Well, I'm working. I'm working. I'm working on my on my on my next film, and I'm also writing my first novel. So oh wow! Can you tell us a bit about the novel? Early days still. Okay. Yeah, it's very complicated for me to talk about about things beforehand. It's always uh, it's always very hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited to see what you do next. I, I found this uh, an exceptional film, and I'm I'm glad that it's getting an audience here in Australia. I did want to ask whether you had any advice for filmmakers. I feel like a lot of your work, you're able to communicate so much in a visual sense and there's so much subtlety uh, and nuance to your work. Um, Do you have any special advice? My only advice is just to follow to follow your instinct, you know, as a filmmaker, and not to try to do anything like anybody else. Or I mean, just to cut yourself from everything else and just to look inside, inside you and around you, also to just be aware of the world around you and to be a alikut to listen to the world around you, uh, and to not. I don't know. It's strange for me because I, I mean, I'm not somebody that's very. Um, rational in the way I work I in the way I write I never plan things in advance I just really let myself get guided by my emotions and by what I feel and uh and just that that feels right you know so my advice would be just to 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 let um to how do you say it just to let go of uh, of what you expect or of what other people might expect and just to really dive inside and and write something that feels true mm. something that is real You've definitely captured an extremely authentic story on screen with the blue caftan. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Mariam. I've really appreciated this chat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, I've got Vaishnavi Vajerkuma and Wilcox in the studio with me tonight. Now, in Nida Manzur's feature-length debut, Polite Society, teenager Rhea Khan, played by Priya Kansara, aspires to be a movie stunt woman, just like her idol, Eunice Hutheart, 
who actually is a real life uh, stunt woman. And former yeah, gladiator. Yeah, she is. I was yeah. just going to say former gladiator. I love Sorry that bit of trivia. Yeah, because yeah. I had a moment where I was like, she looks kind of familiar. And then I looked, I'm like, that is a, I, it was more so I recognised the gladiator uniform. Same. And I was like, that's, that's surely something, right? Um, now, when Rhea's older sister, Lena, a depressed art school dropout, played wonderfully by Rita Aria, um, becomes swept up in a whirlwind romance with a, a too-good-to-be-true suitor called Salim, Rhea can finally put some of those martial arts moves and high skills into action with the help of her buddies Clara and Alba. Here is a little clip. Mom, please, it's just a casual hangout. You need to stop with all this. This is unsafe, Lena. It's a trap. Oh, my God, Rhea, chill out. <laughs> it's just a bit of fun. Yeah, Rhea, chill out. He's looking for a wife, like actively seeking. Oh, so sweet. Uh, no, not sweet. Evil. He's got an enormous wedding boner. Oi! Oh, cool. I'll take the piss out of him. For no, it. no, no, you cannot. I, I forbid you. Okay, guys, we need to take a breather here. I'm a dropout. I'm hardly prime wedding material. True. That is true. No! No, no, no. You, 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 you. You're pretty, you're thin, you're charming. Not like that Seema's daughter with the giant ankles. Ma, Ma not that cool. is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> That is uh, a short clip from Polite Society. Um, Will and Vaish, were you familiar with Manzur's We Are Lady Parts short film beforehand, uh, and which now got series. put into a series? series. Yeah. Well, it was a yeah. short film first, though. Oh, and then didn't it got, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. And then it got put into a TV series. Um, have either of you watched the series? Yes, I've seen I the have. series. Oh, yeah, okay. I've seen some of the series. Okay. I actually, I, I quite... I liked it. It's very amiable, but, but the theatre kid energy coming off it started to grate against me. Well, um, you get a bit of theatre kid energy in polite society. There's a lot of theatre kid energy happening, but, <laughs> but it makes more sense in this context, whereas We Are Lady Parts was about a punk band. Yeah. Um, yeah. And theatre kid and punk band don't quite gel. Mm. And it just didn't make sense to me, so I stopped. But, yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's a bit of punk uh, energy and punk tracks in, in polite society. Uh, so there's still a, you know, it feels like a, a kind of obvious follow through. Um, Vaish, let's start with you. What were your, what were your thoughts? So it, it's interesting watching the film because you feel like you start off with what seems like a story about a conventional South Asian family, and then it goes into a different direction than what you would expect. And I kind of like the way they use that um, format of like a, dis, um, I guess, a wedding, um, which is often used in South Asian narratives, but then take it takes it to a completely different um, level. And I really love the clip that you use because that was one of my favourite jokes in the film. It's like, he's got a wedding boner. Um, And I kind of really um, love that. And I think also that clip that you um, played shows what for a lot of um, South Asian communities is seen as that conventional beauty um, standard around being pretty thin and charming and that's what makes you attractive. Mm. Um, Something to note about this film is that it is about a Pakistani Muslim family and I think that in itself is quite interesting given that often in a lot of um, diaspora um, stories you do get like a Hindu centric story or or an Indian language centric story. So I feel like making it a Pakistani Muslim narrative, similar to Miss Marvel. Mm. Um, I, I really like that. That was the um, take um, that was um, taken for this film. Um, but yeah, I really loved it. It did remind me a lot of Bend It Like Beckham, which is probably the film that resonated most with me when yeah. I was a teenager. Bend It Like Beckham. So that's in its twentieth year anniversary. Is that how you phrase it? Yeah, it was twenty yeah. years ago, basically. 
basically, which is wild. So 20 years ago. Yeah. 20 years ago. It's okay. so wild. I, I feel like that's a great reference point because it's it just makes me feel good about how much we've changed. We don't have a white protagonist put in the lead role of this sort of story. And I feel like the mother, the parents in polite society are so different to how they get typified in Bend It Like Beckham. Um, and I, I really love, I'm going to pull up her name because I thought she was excellently cast. And she's actually also in um, We Are Lady Parts, uh, the mum. Shobu um, Kapoor. Yeah. Yes. She's wonderful. Um, and I love that she's, her, the parents are both like very dimensional and they their daughters have a very authentic um, sibling relationship and um, I loved seeing that on screen. I loved the sibling relationship. Like I think, you know, the younger sister playing that kind of rebellious, <laughs> mouthy um, YouTube star, you might say. <laughs> um, I thought like both of the actors um, played those that dynamic so, so well. Yeah. Uh, and you do get this sense that um, particularly in the way that um, Rhea um, defies like the whole idea of like her sister getting married and following this conventional path it's almost like a projection of her own kind of um defiance and being like you know if my sister's going to go down for this uh, go down this conventional path what does that mean for me yeah, and my aspirations yeah. to be a stunt woman like I thought we were in this together we yeah, were both yeah. gonna you know break the patriarchy and yeah. do our own thing like you were going to be an artist and I was going to be a stunt woman yeah and I think she in some ways she might feel this sense of betrayal that her sister is taking this route yeah I actually, I love that the sisters' relationship is really at the forefront of this film. It, it is the primary relationship and not a romantic one, um, which is so often the case. I I feel like it's super relatable, that sense of I'm, I've got two older sisters and I think that whole thing of when they do decide to leave home, that can be really jarring and quite a traumatic experience. But there's also this feminist angle to it where – like you said, they're, they're, they've both got their careers and that kind of codependency almost of if you give up on your dreams, what does that mean for me? Which is, I think, such a unique angle for a story. Um, I mean, unique is a, is a great word for this particular film because there's a lot in it. Um, wonderful martial arts scenes. Uh, yeah, we haven't come comedy. to the martial arts. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> this is <laughs> your foray. Your foray. Well, no, not, not exactly my, my area, but, but um, we're talking about it like it's a standard... Uh, you know, makes it sound like a rom com. Yeah, yeah, like a, like a family drama, which <laughs> no. it is. Well, but all the conflict is dealt with through very elaborate martial arts scenes. Yeah, well, which Manzu's, are very fun. Yeah, Manzu is a massive fan of um, a lot of Jackie Chan films and stuff like that, which is very obvious. You just watch the trailer, and it's very clear yeah, <laughs> where that influence. The Bruce Lee poster on the wall, yeah, and um, yeah. and it's just like I love that 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 fight scene in the in the school library. Yes, where it becomes a kind yeah. of coliseum, sort of in the round, <laughs> all these school kids baying for blood as yeah. these teenagers smash each other against the walls. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fight scenes where furniture um, and walls get destroyed. Yes. You know, which you, which you see a lot in martial arts films. You just don't normally see that in a teenage girl's bedroom. Yeah, <laughs> and I love that they really go there. They're so well choreographed. They are very bloody and they somehow make it really fun as well. And, I mean, cinema is perfectly made for martial arts to be captured on screen um, and this film really plays around with that. And I love that there's um, there's a fantastic dance scene mm. at the wedding that um, Rhea performs and, yes, it's it's she's dancing but she's also fighting in, in a lot of the gestures and I just thought it was really, I don't know, it had a fantastic energy to it. Yeah, I, I really like the way that it didn't try and 
make any kind of sense of the fight scenes. Yeah. It's just, this is a heightened reality. We're not going to yeah. try and explain it. She doesn't have superpowers. Everybody else seems to know how to do this as well. Yeah. Uh, this is just how you uh, yes. deal with conflict. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And on that question of – or not question, but on that um, theme of heightened reality, I thought what a fantastic way to capture a teenage girl's reality. Everything being, you know, mm. like – peak hormones, this kind of like really sometimes ridiculous heist plans that are cooked up. And I, I really loved the hyper-reality of this. And even like the, the sassy one-liners from her friends Clara and Alba, I thought it worked well. It, it kind of – the tone amazingly juggling martial arts, rom-com, um, this sort of South Asian family dynamic as well, plus uh, – just these sisters, sister, sisterly relationship. The tone is really even throughout this film and it goes to some weird places, but I think it works really well. I think that's the thing. Like, I feel like the tone is what keeps it consistent where all these things are like happening in terms of the narrative. Um, and I really loved what you said about the hyper reality because like sometimes it's, it's almost painted in a way that it's part of her imagination, mm. but in yeah. actuality, her instincts are quite, Right. And I think it's all about um, finding that validity in what um, teenagers think and, and perceive and that they shouldn't be taken for granted. Mm. And I, I kind of like that. I feel like, you know, as a protagonist and as a young protagonist, she seems very empowered and very forthright um, and willing to kind of fight those battles, both physical and emotional. Yeah. And I love that. They've given a space for teenage girls and just a lot of the other characters, but specifically teenage girls, to be angry and to be really quite funny. It reminds me a lot of Booksmart, actually, from a yes. few years ago, that kind of comedy. And I, even though I'm much older than maybe the target audience for, for both these films, I really love just seeing that on screen, like teenage girls being teenage girls. And it reminds me of kind of, you know, obviously a hyper-real real version of what it's like to be in high school, but yeah. not that far off. And it's a lot exactly of those what same it was like. It's exactly what it was like. <laughs> this is a real-life experience. It, it, cook, it really felt like an unreliable narrator sort of situation yes. to me. Yeah. The way that sort of every time there's conflict, it plays out in these fight scenes, which is her obsession. Yeah, you know? true, uh, true. Not anybody else's. And mm. then as things get... You know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but things get increasingly elaborate. Yeah. And then she was right all along. And it's got a wonderful feminist edge to it. Um, there's one scene that um, does play out like kind of a Bond villain-esque moment with, uh, I don't, I'm trying to think of what the relationship would be. Basically, um, Lena's soon-to-be mother-in-law. Um, and a waxing scene and I just Oh my god, I was just gonna talk about that. I was like going, Yes, that is prime torture. <laughs> Being waxed is torture. And it's also seen as like a the, these notions of femininity and what it means to be a woman and what, what it means to be wife material. I mean, it, the film does explore that in very explicit terms. Uh, we won't give, we'll give away any spoilers, of course, but I, I really loved that that was the crux of it and they really make fun of it and send it into this surreal space. There's a, it's it's um, absurd. It actually is absurd. It is totally absurd. And I feel like, you know, even just that waxing scene as an example, it's like talking about all of the rites of passage for teenage girls yeah. and, you know, venturing into adulthood. It's like when you learn about like hair removal, if that's something that you want yeah. to do and that's a part of that and the fear around that and being like, this is not something I want to do. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I really love that. 
And just on the whole idea, well, the, the feminist angle, there's also like, um, of course, we've got Salim, who is the male suitor, uh, but can't think of, oh, and there's a security guard but I'm, and the father, but there's men are really quite... Um, there aren't many They're accessories mm. in and, this And film. there's a recurring joke about men's attitudes to periods or just complete, uh, <laughs> uh, just fear of it. Yes. Which is, which is yeah. very effective. But I feel like, did you feel like the sister character is a little under... Written? Did anybody feel like that? I mean, because that we're told that she's this great, that she's this um, you know artist and weirdo, and we see her being a weirdo for approximately one minute, and then the rest of it, she seems pretty level-headed. Oh, see, I liked the film opens with her like chowing down on a, a rotisserie chicken in a, on a curbside by hand in front of a Chinese <laughs> as, restaurant. Yeah, yeah, as like aunties walk past and judge her. Um, I don't but, know. I but kind then of thought she there immediately was... straightens out. And then, and then we're yeah. told you're not acting like you should. Like yeah, you're, you're acting, um, you know, out of the ordinary. Well, well, we're only told that. Yeah, I feel like there was a few scenes of her in very much like depressive fatigue, um, fugue state. But I, yeah, I suppose that change around does happen quite quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I, there was, um, I heard a criticism about the ending, um, and you know, we're not going to go into that, but um, just the idea that there needed to be a little bit more clarification as to what happens after. <laughs> but yeah. I actually didn't mind it ending. I feel like it ended on a really powerful note Quite and like I was it. I was kind of buzzing and then you've got that wonderful track um, oh, that you mentioned before, Will. That oh, the X-Ray Specs yeah. track, Identity, which yeah. closes the film. Which, which is, is a great a choice. favourite of mine. And you've got yeah. that fantastic punk edge to it. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know, I've had a... So much fun watching this. Like, I really loved it. I had I had a lot of fun, but I did think, like, the pace was a little loose. I think some things were just, uh, you know, there's a lot of spinning plates <laughs> that maybe they had trouble keeping them all up in the air. But mm. it, know, is a, it is a just, debut um, feature, though. I know, yeah. So, it's, I don't it's know. It's pretty I'm, confident and, and the bold e- for a debut. And yeah. the editing is a large part of how the comedy is communicated. Yeah, I feel totally. like that just, like, nails it so many times. Totally. And, uh, you know, more to your um, point, Will, around the underdevelopment of um, Lena's character, I think when I was um, watching it, what I kind of um, – felt like um, when, when she did go down that conventional path is that she was kind of aimless, you know, she dropped out of art school and, and you know, she received, I guess, some severe critiques that questioned her ability to pursue a career as an artist. And I guess for um, some women, maybe, um, you know, going down that conventional and known path of getting married and settled down gives you a sense of security when you feel so aimless and uncertain Mm -hmm. and that's that was kind of my take on it like you know personally I would have also loved to you know working in the arts myself like you know I would have loved to seen um I guess more of that depth about you know her individuality but then I I felt like um that was the crux of her narrative and what her younger sister Rhea was really trying to fight against so Mm. yeah that's a great observation and I suppose if we're understanding this film as through Rhea's perspective maybe she just sees her sister on this pedestal and sees that switch mm. in her personality which like you say will is really dramatic like she's that scene. can't get out of bed and then suddenly is mm. very much out of bed. love <laughs> yeah. wearing a cardigan yeah. and there's that scene that scene where she sort of uh, you know has a bit of a confrontation with the fiance um, yeah. says, what do you actually love about her? And he's just like, oh, she's kind and she's nice, which is just really stock <laughs> so generic. standard generic stuff. But it's just like, well, we don't know much about her either. I mean, yeah. True. it's not it's not as if uh, Rhea really uh, has much, you know, to, to counter that with, apart from she says you're not nice, you're pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> I think 
know, which is nice. That's that's. I feel like that's such stuff. peak younger sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I was a bit. Yeah, I I feel like they they nailed that dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> too too much to my discomfort. So maybe it fits in with her not being a, a reliable narrator. It's really mm. all about her. It's nothing. To yeah. Do with her yeah. 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 It is about her perspective. I mm. think that's a really good point. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm just glad that this film exists. Um, I know that Riz Ahmed posted about this film. I think he's good good pals with Manzur and was like booked out two theatres just so oh, people wow. could see it. Um, uh, yeah. The power of Riz Ahmed. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of Riz Ahmed. But uh, we, yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Do you want a minute? Do we want to dwell on that? I feel like last time when we did, what was it, Sound of Metal, we were talking oh about God. how much we love Riz Ahmed. <laughs> He's great. He is great. Anyway, another thing that is great is I think Polite Society, and I highly recommend people check it out. It is currently playing at uh, cinemas all around Australia. It is now time for our last review of the night. So in Brandon Cronenberg's Infinity Pool, a struggling writer, James, played by everyone's favourite lanky Swede, Alexander Skarsgård, and his wife, Australia's own Cleopatra Coleman, uh, go on vacation to an unnamed foreign country. And at their bougie hotel compound, they meet superfan Gabby, a wonderfully manic Mia Goth, and her older lover, Alban, played by Jalil Lesbeth. But when the foursome head out of the compound for a day trip and have an accident, things get decidedly messy and weird and a bit cloney. It's worth mentioning uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with Brandon Cronenberg's work that, yes, it is, uh, it is that Cronenberg of uh, body horror legend, David Cronenberg, uh, is his father. And um, we reviewed Brandon's earlier film, Possessor, on primal screen back in, I think, 2020, from memory. Uh, I don't think we've ever reviewed Antiviral, which is another one of his films. Uh, but Possessor was one of my favourite films from that year, uh, so I was pretty excited to see Infinity Pool. A lot of hype around it. Um, Will, what were your thoughts going in? Dipping uh, well, into the pool. I don't have a pun. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Diving in. Well, we, we tried. We were trying to find the, the, how they were promoting this film and all we could find was very nice, fun holiday things about infinity pools, which is this is absolutely not. I, I was, it's a great title though, isn't it? I, yeah. The more I think about it, the more I love the title because it's just like the absolute symbol of you know, disposable income. Yeah, 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 of decadent mm. wealth and holidays. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was really excited going in because I really like Possessor as well. Yeah. Um, and um, it's uh, – I wasn't really disappointed. I I loved it. I had a, a great – maybe great time isn't the <laughs> – Yeah, I don't think that's what they were <laughs> going for. It's very strange. It's very um, horrible. But as far as I'm concerned, we don't need a third White Lotus. This is the third White Lotus. <laughs> Um, the, you know, this is the same thing but taken further, the same overall sort of narrative trajectory but with psychedelic orgies and like, yeah. collapsing identity and body horror. <laughs> I feel like every week we have a, a kind of like Eat the Rich film where we're like, and this is this week's uh, Eat the Rich film. It's I like know, a real trend. And, uh, it is. Uh, it's unavoidable. It is as much a real as they trend. like say, no, no, it's different this time. It's like it's eat the rich again. But they've all come in quick succession, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so they haven't it looked at they haven't looked at um, you know uh, triangle of sadness and gone. We'll get something in in, in no, works. No, it's really a, we're just responding to the like, the growing you know discrepancy between you know the classes. the rich must be yeah. eaten. Yeah, yeah, they should be in. <laughs> uh, the cast, <laughs> the cast. Um, I loved as well. Yeah. Perfect so. casting because they're just like a beautifully uncanny bunch of 
hateable rich people. Isn't, I just got to say, Mia Goth's face, I just, I think it's remarkable. And her voice, she's actually using her real accent. That's her real voice. That doesn't Isn't happen that wild? much. <laughs> yeah, Mia Goth yeah. and, and Cleopatra Coleman. Yeah. Uh, are both well, Mia Goth in particular gets to go all out on the on the bizarreness. Yeah, uh, and I love that she's building this uh, body of unhinged performances. Um, <laughs> you, you know, like laughing and screaming with a gun on a sports car. Maybe I shouldn't give too much away, but but <laughs> she's she's quite mad. She's quite mad. And, yeah. and this oh, Pearl is out in the cinemas as well at the moment. Mm, I think, yeah. and and she's quite mad in that too, but in a completely different way. Like mm. I feel like she um, encompasses this archetype in horror films of like this hot, scary, sexy baby girl kind of totally. Energy. That is so perfect, and she she does that in Infinity Pool. And baby girl is such a great phrase because that I think is what is so terrifying about her voice in this film uh, is it's like a little girl. And she's terrifying. (laughs) She is so terrifying and she's got like the widened eyes Mm. and like the curious questions Mm. and just the way she seduces Alexander Skarsgård by playing to his ego. You know, Mm. he's a writer. She knew exactly how to manipulate him. I think it's just a lot of people often underestimate women who look like her, who are Mm. beautiful and blonde and, you know, seemingly sweet. But, you know, I I think the um, things that are unveiled about her character and her motivations – are very, very clever. Yeah, and I know it's a trend now to have the whole bleached eyebrows, but it really has a fantastic effect in this film of just her face almost becomes a bit skull-like and um, it's just really, yeah, the visuals in this film, just to, to yeah. focus on that for a second, are remarkable. Uh, the, there's a lot of hallucination scenes, which I don't think he's giving anything away. If you watch the trailer, you can yeah. imagine there is. Uh, and they were all done with moulds. Um, there's a bit of VFX, but mm. it's a lot of, um, you know, I think Cronenberg really does, like his father, come back to creating these amazing horror sequences. I absolutely loved that in Possessor, his earlier film, where it had those moments. And again, in Infinity Pool, we have this return of really well-crafted horror moments. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I didn't love this film, I have to say. You didn't? No, oh. I didn't love it. But I really loved Possess It, so I feel like I had this huge um, expectations. I didn't love it because I feel as though it maybe leaned too heavily on visuals and not enough on plot, and I kind of wanted it to go more into some more interesting things to do with colonialism and tourism, and it touches upon them, but I just feel like it could have really dug Mm. the knife in a bit deeper there. It's interesting that the the visual effects I absolutely love Mm. as well, and I love that they're all physical, mainly Mm. physical effects. And I read an interview um, with with Cronenberg um, by uh, Nadine Whitney, often of this parish. Yes, yes. Who... um, uh, he was pointing out in this interview that, that there, there are digital effects, but they're mainly just to mask things, yeah. you know, or just to yeah. pick up on little make it a bit more fixes, seamless. just make it a yeah. bit more seamless. Well, I think the right way to do it mm. because phys- there's nothing you can – you can't replace the physical. No CGI comes close, I don't think. No. You can tell it a mile away. That's true. It doesn't true. look right. And I think when you're dealing no, – Not that this looks right. This looks horrible, <laughs> but it looks real. You said you had a great time, Will. I had a great time and everything <laughs> was <weirdo>. right. <laughs> But no, you're right. There's, um, I think that it's important that it is anchored to something real and, and then there's a lot of masking that's used and I think that's really clever because it does go to some very weird places. I think what's a really interesting part of Infinity Pool is it never actually names the country that they are in, but 
there kind of creates this, you know, when you go to, ho- well, it's a made <laughs> I haven't gone country. to a hotel in a long time, but like that sort of sense of facelessness to mm. hotels or that kind of expression of, yeah, if you're, if you're in a hotel resort in a foreign country, but you're completely removed from the people who live mm. in that country, you could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fascinating premise though. What, yeah. did, what did you think? Vash? I thought the premise was so interesting because like, you know, if, if, and there was something, um, I don't know if the right word is sickening or like dis- discomforting about watching mm. it, even from the beginning with like the camera angles and, you know, the whole kind of scenery revolving, you're immediately set into this kind of feeling of unease mm. right from the offset. And I think for me, particularly like I'm, I'm trying to engage more with the horror genre. It's not my always, always my go-to genre. No, mine neither. Actually. Um, but yeah. That can't be right. <laughs> no, I, I, no, no. I love being made uncomfortable in films, but I, I prefer like really like discomforting social situations, I see, you know, like I really see. uncomfortable humor. Haneke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. European cinema, but yeah. not, yeah, I, I, I love, I do love body horror though. I do, I do enjoy it, but I just find I get, I'm too get scared too easily. I know I'm too scared. And I think, you know, even with, um, films like, oh God, it's, um, bones and all, like even that, oh, like yeah. I had like a physical, um, reaction to it. Me too. Um, did we talk about this Yes, I think we did. Yeah, I think I think we we did. did. <laughs> I know. And I was, I was, I but guess I was, I was pregnant at the time. Oh my God. So, so it could have been that we can attribute it to that. But like, I think that was a big fear of mine as well. It's like, is this going to um, take me there as well? But it's just this constant feeling of unease and even mm. that kind of orchestral um, tense music, um, like with strings and things Tim like Hecker, that. Tim Hecker, who yeah. wrote the score for this, who's, yeah. who's I did want excellent. to play some Tim Hecker, but you look, you can just look it up because it's, yeah, beautiful Go and score. listen to some Tim Hecker, yeah. any Tim Hecker. It's amazing stuff. <laughs> While you're making dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it constantly kind of made me feel um, uncomfortable. And I think, mm. you know, it's so interesting. I just feel like Alexander Skarsgård's everywhere right now. Um, you what know, do you think about that? Because I feel like that's maybe why I didn't like this so much because oh. I find, I, I feel like... I used to like Skarsgård but now I'm kind of like I, I don't know that especially compared to some of the other actors I mean like Cleopatra Coleman's great in her role Mia Goth um Jalil Lesbert like loved loved them I just feel like Skarsgård doesn't always give a lot with his face mm. and maybe that's the point of this you know he's a bit of a he's a bit of a, like a restrained Swede <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he doesn't belong he doesn't I belong I suppose that's the point yeah I just found it a bit frustrating that you've got all these hectic things happening and sometimes his face didn't do much, but yeah, like, there's not much room for faces when Mia Goths is the other face in the scene. <laughs> this is true. This is yeah, true. It was a face off. Out- it was okay. a face off. Yeah, she outacted him. Okay, reboot a face off. With, with Mia, Mia Goth and Alex I I do love that Cronenberg. Kind of, I just feel like each of his films, he he obviously has an obsession with with these kind of more philosophical questions of body horror. And I, I feel like, you know, David Cronenberg also had that same obsession. So I do love that he kind of goes to these places. It's interesting that he wants to follow so closely in the footsteps mm, of his dad. It is, isn't they're, they're similar, you know, they're not identical, but they're similar concerns, yeah. you know, and you could imagine this being made by his father, perhaps. I I think you, you were saying before about the the the... The body horror sequences, the psychedelic sequences, um, the orgy sequences are all very beautiful and weird to look mm. at and very, very accomplished, but they don't always gel quite with the film. It's like, what is this? Why yeah, are we watching this bit? It's got a bit of a soft What's porny vibe here? to it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. It's just it's slightly not quite meshed in with the whole 
vibe. Yeah, like when it did go into the sexy scenes, I was like, I'm trying to understand how this fits in with the whole kind of narrative on the cloning mm. and the and the questions of morality because I felt like the bits where it did talk about morality and those scenes where you're, um, you know, watching your your clone, you know, um, being being you know, um, punished or you know, and all the questions around like, um, you know, what does it mean to be held culpable for your actions? Mm. Like I thought that was so great. That's so fascinating, and that's what I mean. That's what I wish it went into. And I feel like Possessor does a much better job of exploring darker themes and the complexities of it. I feel as though Cronenberg has this same obsession with identity and ethics, but and it's there. It just doesn't go there more often. It kind of gets caught up in all the Visuals. sexy thing of Skarsgård and Goth. And I'm like, that's great, but. I don't know. It's a bit more of an interesting take to be like, okay, you've got all these rich people in this country and they're basically able to buy their way out of horrible, horrible crimes. That is fascinating. I just wanted it to be. I I thought that made sense because it was, um, you know, the, the, the ramifications, you take out the actual ramifications yeah, of committing these yeah. crimes and the ramifications are like a total internal mental collapse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which which made perfect sense to me. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was reading some of the marketing around this film yeah. or some of the summaries and things that are around and I'm not sure if it's an official thing, but one thing that I read said uh, they disc- well, this was on several websites, they discovered the, the country's dark culture. Which is not oh. really what it's about at all. No, it's about that's a weird phrasing. That's kind of almost yeah. missing the point. I know it's about because it's really it's about um, a, a bizarre bastardization of the culture driven by tourism and corrupt policing and colonialism. Well, interesting with the policing though. I think that one of the caveats of uh, I don't want to give too much away about this film, but a caveat that they have around this process of cloning, they do have to bear witness to something yeah and i think that is fascinating and that question of clones and double i mean like it's throughout horror it's always returns back to the double which is a fascinating premise you know i i think that that question of who is the real person is is so interesting i hope that the very vague way that we're skating around the actual plot (laughs) is is enticing people (laughs) yes because what the hell are you talking about (laughs) Uh, I, th- I think it's worth seeing. I think worth seeing at the cinema. I didn't love it just because I love Possessor, and I feel like if you're just going to watch, if you uh, watch that one first and then see if you still like Infinity Ball. If you maybe Antiviral, have either of you seen Antiviral? No, no I wasn't I'm even aware tempted. of it. I... Yeah, I'm keen to watch it. It's, I think that came out before Possessor. Oh right. So okay, that I might, might be one I wasn't aware. Yeah, because yeah, Possessor was uh, it was a big one for me. I really liked mm. that, but um, mm. no, I wasn't aware before then that the Cronenberg, yeah. Brandon Cronenberg was a filmmaker at all. Vaish, <laughs> what's the? I feel like kid. Will's a fan. I'm not so much a fan. Where are you on this? You know what? Like, because I'm not as familiar with Cronenberg's um, work, so I think I went into this with, um, I guess, none of that kind of prerequisite knowledge, mm. and and I honestly really enjoyed it because it went in a direction I didn't expect. Like, I thought it would just be like straight horror, like mm. you know, you know, kind of body horror after body horror after body horror. But I think the way that they built up the premise and like how it kind of questioned like our basest human desires no matter how dark they could be Mm. i think i really enjoyed that aspect of of this film and i thought that was done really well yeah absolutely i do agree that it's a very visually beautiful film if that's a weird thing to say about a body horror uh infinity pool is currently playing at cinemas nationwide you're listening to primal screen on triple r 
Ahead of reconciliation in NAIDOC week, VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency, invites people to host a morning tea for culture with close friends, at work, school or place of worship. Morning tea for culture is a chance to learn more about Aboriginal culture and issues facing Aboriginal people, while fundraising to help children in VACA's care to heal and connect to culture. For info on hosting a morning tea or to make a donation, head to vacca.org. VACA, triple R sponsors. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Wilcox, Vaishnaviva Jokama and myself, Flick Ford, on tonight's show. I spoke with Mariam Tusani, the director and co-writer of The Blue Kaftan. I did say that it opened, was out in cinemas now, but uh, we looked it up and I think that there's going to be a preview screening at Nova here in Melbourne on the weekend and then I think there will be normal screenings after that. So next week you can check out The Blue Caftan. I think it's the 18th. 18th. There we go. Um, and so you can listen back to that interview via um, rrr.org.au uh, or um, via the Primal Screen podcast. Uh, we also reviewed, sorry, I meant to say, Nita Mazur's uh, kick-ass action comedy, Polite Society. And we finished up the hour with Brandon Cronenberg's uh, bougie horror, Infinity Pool. And both of those films are currently screening at cinemas around the country. A uh, big thank you to Luke Lay, who edits our podcast and also does our socials. Uh, Will and Vaish, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 